Welcome to the public morality. The unprecedented news that former President Donald Trump would be indicted sent the chattering class a buzz. The only president to be impeached twice is now the only president to be indicted. Beyond the implications of illegality, what are the implications for American democracy? Joining me to discuss the implications of the Trump indictment in American democracy, I'm joined by Boston University political history professor, Andrew David. Professor Andrew David, welcome to the public morality. Thank you so much. Since former President Trump announced back in 2015 that he would seek the presidency, few have been neutral about him. I think that's a fair assessment. So with the official news of his indictment, how does this, in your view, impact American democracy? It is. Uh, it's a moment on one hand where I think it's fair to say the system works. This is good news. Um, there's always been this question of what happens to a president if there's a feeling that they have broken the law while in office. <clears throat> will it be some way to address that when they leave office? Um, with Richard Nixon, we have a pardon by Gerald Ford, so you don't ever get to test that out. With Ronald Reagan and Iran-Contra, for political reasons, um, that never sort of is a situation or a question with him. And because of the actions of, of Bill Barr and others, um, not all by any stretch of the imagination, but, but you could argue many of the people involved um, don't face legal consequences. With Bill Clinton, after his impeachment, you did have the suspension of his law license for a number of years, but you never had anything quite like this. So, so yeah, I think on one hand, you know, congratulations, the system seems to be functioning. Um, on the other hand, I think it's undeniable that there is something that is is sort of scary about, you know, what, what it means to indict a president. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying it is unprecedented and um, and it is is unknown ground. And we're all going to be going through this together as a nation, certainly over the next couple months um, and, and perhaps longer, depending on trial start dates, other indictments, things along those lines. And though, as you just stated, sir, it's unprecedented in U.S. history. But the notion of heads of state being indicted in democratic societies is not new. I'm thinking, you know, what France, uh, Sarkozy, you had in Italy, you had Berlusconi, in South Korea, you had Park. So to some degree, are, are we held hostage by, you know, I guess a fallacious belief that, that we hold out for American democracy, that somehow the people we elect uh, as commander in chief are impervious to this type of wrongdoing? It's interesting. I, I think that is certainly one way to look at it. And you're 100% correct that um, in comparison to many of America's democratic peers, certainly the nation is is behind the eight ball in terms of, of having reached this step previously. Part of that, I think, to, to again, connect this back with some of the sort of history, I think part of this is because of the evolving nature of the presidency. The fact is, for much of the 19th century and really into the 20th century, the presidency was not an office that in a weird way was terribly important. Um, Congress was the branch of government that had all the power. And there were plenty of moments in which people in Congress were, were subjected to criminal trials. It's only with the evolution of the modern presidency, maybe starting around the, the administration of William McKinley, definitely taking off by the time we get to Franklin Roosevelt, um, that there's sort of an idea that you know the president's decisions, the president's actions um, have a, a clearer sense of power than they did previously. 
and I think with that, there there was a certain amount of of questioning about, well, then what exactly do we do if if someone breaks the law? Uh, a perfect example of this, um, and something you, you or your listeners may be familiar with. This is a little little bit different, but not terribly different. Um, just before the 1968 election. Uh, very famously, Lyndon Johnson, using illegal FBI wiretaps, discovers that Richard Nixon is leaking material about America's um, peace, potential peace negotiations with the, the Vietnamese. Um, he, he's sort of, you know, dealing with the North Vietnamese behind the scenes. He wants to sabotage these negotiations. And we know because, again, Johnson recorded these conversations that he goes to both Democrats and Republicans, sort of talks about the this situation in general terms, but eventually comes to the decision that if he went public with such damning evidence, well, damning claims, first of all, he'd have to reveal where he got this, <clears throat> pardon me. But second of all, he was afraid of the damage it would do to the nation. I think we see something quite similar in the aftermath of Iran-Contra. There was a hesitation to... to um, sort of charge Ronald Reagan more fully for a variety of reasons, but part of it was, what does it mean to charge a president? Um, so I think, yes, there is a kind of, we have we have made holy the office for reasons that both are are perhaps true and, and certainly part of, of, of the myth of America, um, and that has prevented pre potentially such actions from taking place previously. So um, thinking about the current moment, does, does that explain in part uh, why the news of this indictment is uh, President Trump is sandwiched in my words uh, between those perplexed as to why it didn't happen earlier um, and those who see it as simply a witch hunt. I think so. I think I, I think you're on something in terms of the media polarization about this moment and and we know that this New York indictment was something that um, within the, the New York prosecutor's office, there was a certain amount of uh, debate over. And that's not necessarily debate whether this was a good indictment to bring or not, but exactly the way to bring this, what kind of evidence to bring in. Um, I think I think that within, you know, from what we were able to sort of figure out or from what we've heard from within that office, we have had um, and a, a sort of manifestation of exactly what you're talking about. They don't want to be seen as as being simply um, doing the the job of of you know uh, sort of an arm of the Democratic Party or, or going after an innocent person. Um, and on the other hand, I think there are obviously plenty of people out there who say, why why did this not happen when he was in office? Why did it take so long? Um, that is a, a natural kind of um, example of the fracture we see in America society more broadly. Well, what does it say uh, about our public discourse that so much of discussion has taken place over the airwaves um, as if New York uh, District Attorney Alvin Bragg just has personally showed individuals what was in the sealed document? So there's a, there's a level of authority that's happening in the public discourse that's really making conjecture fact. If, yeah. Oh, sorry. Yes. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh no, I, I think I, I think that's a natural, to a certain extent, that's a natural byproduct of of this unprecedented moment. People kind of want to understand what exactly is going on. They they want to they want a complete story before we have a complete story. And so I think you're seeing a lot of, um, 
I won't say jumping to conclusions necessarily, but but perhaps uh, attempts to understand this story and understand the details of the story, despite despite the, the sealed nature of this case, um, that we might not see if this was not such a, a public uh, figure. Um, do do you worry? Is uh, I understand it again, and just for my last question, I understand it. Um, the New York case was probably. Um, the one that was least clear cut of the possible uh, indictments against the former president. Do you worry that the country might become indictment weary, um, given the former president on investigation in a number of areas? Absolutely. Um, but I also, in terms of the legal side of things, you know, whether whether uh, District Attorney Bragg had a choice, I, in, to a certain extent, I think that's a separate question. However, um, I think an example of how we might become indictment weary is an example of how the country has become scandal weary in a lot of ways. And, and I would say this maybe isn't anything new. If you look back during the 20th century, um, you know, look back at the um, the administration of Warren G. Harding in the 1920s. This is a guy who famously had probably one of the most corrupt administrations in American history. Uh, and were it not for his death in office, might have on some level faced charges himself. And yet none of those scandals bring him down. After Watergate, after Iran-Contra, after the, the many controversy, controversies of the Clinton years, after controversies involving George W. Bush, including the invasion of Iraq, um, even through a relatively scandal-free eight years of the Obama administration, what did we see during the Trump years? We saw repeated news stories of, of different scandals, some of which had an impact, but two impeachments and the election was probably closer than, than some people thought it, it would be um, in the grand scheme of things in terms of a Biden victory. So I think, yeah, if, if America grew sort of okay with scandal, I could see uh, a moment in which, well, an indictment, is that really such a big deal? Um, I think we're still a little ways from getting to that point. And a lot of this, I think, really depends on how the case plays out. But like I said, I think those public relations, the, the public relations element to that question may be different than um, the legal questions behind bringing these charges. Um, this is... Uh... A slight deviation, but, but to make your point, I, I think I think uh, we've normalized impeachment. I think um, we've normalized around this time of year. There's going to be a debate about whether or not to extend the debt ceilings. Absolutely true. Many Americans uh, now uh, view those in opposition uh, as an existential threat. Uh, and this is not something that President Trump originated, but this phenomenon during his time uh, on the front page has certainly exacerbated. Uh, is, this a, uh, is this a trend for America's foreseeable future, whether there's a Trump or no Trump? Uh, and if so, doesn't that seem uh, to coin the uh, to quote uh, William Butler Yates, when he says, when things fall apart, the center cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the wall. Is that where we're headed? I like to hope not. This is always one of the tricky things about the the, the job of a historian. Is, um, there are moments where you don't have the answers uh, and, and you can sort of rely on the past to a certain extent uh, to, to help inform your, your observations. 
Um, I like to think that in the past we can see moments in which you get very close to these these points, and for whatever reason, you are able to draw things back. Um, however, I think it is also unquestionably the case that there is a tension in this nation um, that that it's been a long time since since we've seen something like this. I don't mean to laugh at that, but um, that is is new and and is scary. However, you know, I think all you got to do is is go back to the 1950s, the 1960s. Look at politics, um, especially politics around the civil rights movement, especially politics around emer other emerging social movements during that period. I mean, the rhetoric is is different now to to some extent, but the underlying themes that this is a crisis to the nation and we must act to stop this. Well, that's present back then too. It was just, I think, to to sort of you know borrow from from Yates myself for a moment. It was that there was an imagined sense that there was a a center, um, you know, a center informed by a kind of you know idea of of American nationhood. A lot of that tied up in in you know white identity, certainly. But that center existed or, or was imagined by a lot of people to exist back then. Um, in a way that that has been disabused now. And I think that that is part of what makes this moment feel different. Um, certainly, there have been movements in both political parties that have added to this. I, I would say the Democrats have moved left, but I would say they probably have not moved left in such a way that we've seen the Republicans move to the right. Um, but again, that's not a new story. Um, Nelson Rockefeller, 1964, gets up on a stage in San Francisco to denounce what he sees as a dangerous uh, rightward move of the GOP and is booed off stage uh, in, you know, in front of a, a massive crowd captured on TV. Um, that's a different Republican Party in 1964 than it is today. But but these ideas, like I said, they they are um, they've been with us for a while. But to get back to your point. Yeah, there there is something about today that feels different. And, you know, the thing that sort of gives me a little bit of hope potentially We've managed to, after trying times, bring ourselves back to a sense of of uh, an even keeledness as a nation. Um, in the past, hopefully, we can do that uh, going forward. Um, I, I raised that last question because I actually was watching um, sixty Minutes um, with with Marjorie Taylor Greene, mm. and I was just sort of struck that she gave an answer about Ukraine. Now, it wasn't a full-throated endorsement of Vladimir Putin. I want to be clear about that. She did not do that. But it was she did use language that in the height of the Cold War would have just been inconceivable to anybody in the opposite party would have not been all in on the Cold War ethos. And it seems like when that evaporated, it, it, American democracy has increased and become her uh, being herded like cats without having that staunch boogeyman or boogie person to oppose. Yeah. I, I think there is, it, it's funny because um, while, while my, my, a lot of my focus in the last couple of years has been uh, presidential history and, and U.S. domestic politics, my original sort of motivation to, to get into graduate school for history was about international history and international relations. And you know, the joke, the joke around the grad student lounge was always, 
Oh, great. Congratulations. You picked a subject that no one in America really cares about outside Pearl Harbor, September 11th, and maybe the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, fair enough. And, and you know, good, good nature joshing among grad students. But I think this is absolutely true. Uh, the Cold War consensus, this notion of a, I put this in, in scare quotes, but a unifying theme that kind of dictated certain elements of American life, that did glue the country together in a variety of ways. Now, there were, let me make it perfectly clear, all kinds of drawbacks, all kinds of pe people whose lives suffered because of that consensus, but it provided unity, and you're right, it provided a, a general sort of sense of this is what we, this is acceptable political behavior in terms of policy often, and this is where we, we you know, you're crossing the line. I think a little bit of that was brought back with September 11th um, for, and, and I think for all kinds of reasons, the war on terror had a sort of stand-in moment for the Cold War, but we are in a moment in which without having a, a kind of yardstick like that to measure the norms of, of American political life um, in, in, a, in a positive way to a certain extent, but also certainly in a negative way, the boundaries of of um, of American political behavior have changed in that sense. In this present moment, have we devolved into a post-truth culture so that the actual outcome, if it's not saying my desired outcome, the actual outcome becomes irrelevant? Very good question, and and certainly something I'm fearful of. Uh, again, one of the things with with dealing with facts and and analysis is you always worry. Uh oh, what happens if if no one accepts the facts for what they are? Um, that is a fear. I, I don't much like the the violence question you asked. Are we really there? Well, I like to think we're not there yet, but certainly, um, certainly the idea that you can just create whatever facts you want, you can live in your own reality. That is not only accepted, but it's also possible these days in a way it hasn't been for a long time. This is not exactly the same as your your last question about the Cold War and and you know whether um, Marjorie Taylor Greene would have been you know judged harshly at a, if if we were still facing the Soviet Union. But you know in the 19th century you have a press that um, is not sort of constrained by modern journalistic standards. Whether that's objectivity or not, that may be a different story. But I think in the 19th century, you had a similar moment where people could kind of invent their facts and invent the world they lived in. Um, and that ultimately could not be sustained um, once we got a, a modern media. Um, I think with the media today, this is a little bit beyond the scope of my expertise, but obviously with, with you know new forms of digital media, we're still kind of assessing how to use those effectively, what kind of impact they have on, on society. Um, but I think unquestionably it is true that that the environment we live in today for all sorts of reasons allows people to construct their reality in a way that would have been very difficult two decades ago, uh, maybe even less than that. Um, but but certainly now that's that's a possibility, you know. Well, I, I was just thinking that one of the sort of, I guess one of the flaws of American democracy has long been the assumption that regardless of one's political orthodoxy, there was a collective desire for the larger mission. Now, we have different parties had different ways of getting at that large mission, um, but that was always the assumption. 
now we're at loggerheads um, in a sense that the parties are now, in my view, wrestling with who's in possession of the larger mission. And that seems to be a very, very different motive. I'd like to have your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, uh, yes, I, I agree. Um, there is a debate over Americanness. What is the modern American dream? What is the American mission uh, in a way that we haven't seen for a long time? You saw, again, let's let's go back to the, the 1930s, um, maybe, maybe further back than, than you want, but let's, we'll start there very quickly. And, you know, out of the 1920s, you had a, a Republican Party that very much said, you know, America is a thriving capitalist system, doesn't need any government intervention. Um, you can be successful. Well, if you work hard enough, you can be successful. And those people who are successful deserve to be rewarded. Great Depression hits. Franklin Roosevelt comes in, New Deal Coalition. And you get a reimagining of what the American mission is. For Roosevelt, this includes things like, obviously, a world role that was not quite alien, but anathema to a certain extent to his predecessors. But you also get the four freedoms, uh, you know, freedom from want, freedom from fear, freedom of worship, worship and, and freedom of speech. And the, the idea that, you know, these should be the kind of founding moments of, of what it means to be American and what we can, um, you know, what Americans should be doing in the rest of the world. That then becomes a, a contested issue during the Cold War. However, again, back to your argument about, you know, the, the sort of unifying moment, the Cold War consensus does sort of take the place of this inter-party debate because we know what it means to be American, right? It means democracy. It means, you know, uh, uh, being anti-communist, um, you know, fill in all the, the mom and apple pie rhetoric you want here, but that's what American meant. In recent years, both for foreign policy reasons, but I would say also because of, of domestic uh, concerns in terms of the Great Recession, um, in terms of the, the kind of recessions of the, the Bush years, um, a changing American economy, these, these ideas are up for grabs in ways that, that in, in a fundamental way, up for grabs in a fundamental way, in, in a sense that they, they haven't been, again, probably since the 1930s. Um, so yeah, I think that you see this inter-party combat um, and it, again, I think it feels so, so visceral and so significant because it's been so long since we've seen these ideas sort of discussed in this way, assuming you want to use the word discussed, argued about, um, and, you know, potentially argued about with, with, you know, threats of violence and, and all this, uh, that, that is very different from what we've seen for a long time. Well, take the, um, Voting Rights Act of 1965. Mm -hmm. That was motivated in part, not, not exclusively, but that was motivated in part because of the propaganda, the embarrassment of, of uh, the Soviet Union about America preaches democracy, but look at Selma, for example. And I cannot think of any sort of galvanizing effort internationally that would have that kind of influence on domestic on domestic politics. In fact, we actually see a rollback and gutting of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, what, um, some 30, some 30 years later. So, uh, I mean, I mean, that is the kind of ethos that I see this indictment um, sort of birthed in. And, you know, good thoughts, sir. Yeah, I think that that's right uh, in terms of, or I would I would agree with a lot of that in terms of 
of the international situation. Again, I think he often is is kind of mocked for this, and and I'm not saying that's inappropriate. But you go back to George W. Bush after September 11th. I was just going through this with a class. You know, when Bush talks to Congress about why Americans are going into Afghanistan, one of the things he emphasizes is they hate us because of our freedom. And with the rhetoric you see in that early 2000s time period, you know, the Soviets were able to take advantage. Absolutely. I completely agree with you on this. The Soviets were able to take advantage of of that, you know, moment back in the 1950s, 1960s and 1970s to, to influence the civil rights you know, campaign at, at home, not, not, you know, directly influenced, obviously, but but from overseas. This is something um, American, various administrations were incredibly aware of. But by the time we reached the 1990s, again, we've achieved maximum freedom. So there's nothing really that I think, um, as you said, it would be difficult for a foreign power to kind of influence those changes or suggest those changes in a way that the Soviet Union uh, could have with its propaganda. The indictment and, and how it kind of factors into that, uh, this is a, how much of this is, is uh, I'm not going to say political in nature because that implies some sort of bias, but but certainly um, the rollback you talked about is is present uh, without, without doubt. And um, the Voting Rights Act uh, uh, gutting and, and overall modifications of, of both the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, um, to say nothing of, of other attempts to kind of roll back the progress that was made over, you know, in the nation. Those are, yeah, those are part of this, this, um, you know, th those seem tied maybe not to Donald Trump and Trumpism, but, but he is, is part of that whole movement, it feels like. I'd be very interested to sort of get into the mind of Alvin Bragg and, and figure out, you know, how does he situate this in, in the context of those political developments? I, I think, you know, on the surface, I'm sure he would say, I'm just upholding the law. That's my job. Um, and that's what we like to think that, that, you know, again, back to your first question, we like to think that this is the system working. It doesn't matter, you know, who, what his party affiliation is. Bragg would do this if this was a Republican or a Democrat. Um, and again, I'm not trying to cast aspersions on him, but I, he must have some historical understanding of, of what this, this is part of. So I can give my kind of, you know, point of view of, of how this might fit in. But um, but I think at some point, maybe you someone's going to have a really interesting sit down conversation with him, probably in like, you know, a decade and a half or, or two decades and, and figure out what's, um, yeah, what was going on in his head during this this time period. Well, I, I think that I speak for a, a lot of people that hope that 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 hope his eyes had dotted and his T's across because to do this unprecedented act um, and to have it fall on his face, I mean, that's that's like being yanked off the, the stage with the cane. I mean, you're done. Yeah. Well, and I think that's exactly why um, I'm sure there is, just like you said, I think I think just before we started recording, you know, the, the, the curse is to live in interesting times. Um, it is fascinating to watch watch this unfold just from the historian's perspective. And I know for many members of the public, this is the exact same thing. However, I'm sure in that office there is, and, and again, we know this from the, the information that's come out, there's a tremendous amount of, there was a tremendous amount of discussion over whether this was the case to bring. And, and I think this that level of discussion has probably saved Donald Trump in the past from other potential indictments. Again, unquestionably, this has saved other 
former index presidents in the past too, because no one wants to be, just like you said, no one wants to be that person who doesn't dot their I's and cross their T's because the the results could be um, uh, you know catastrophic in terms of future prosecutions. The animus, and we, we touched on this earlier, but the animus for the opposition, in my view, is so strong um, that it's quite possible to conclude, for someone to conclude, uh, well, you know, tr President Trump deserved to be impeached both times. He lied with impunity while president. I accept all of those things. He lost the 2020 election and he, and he probably deserves to be indicted as many times as he's indicted, but I would still vote for him if he's a Republican nominee. Does this sound like hyperbole or do you think this is a space that we're really in right now? And if so, why? I think I think you're right. I like to think. I mean, again, as as probably some of my previous answers have hinted at, I like to think this is not as as um, expansive a segment of the population as as um, we might think. But absolutely, and and I would say, this is nothing that is is um, particular to Trump or or even this era. We we this is this is the case with any democratic country in terms of voting. There are people who will vote the party line. Uh, they'll vote the party line no matter what the situation. Um, without you know going into detail, I have family members where I know this is the case that they will vote the party line, uh, and I'm sure I'm not alone. I'm sure everyone you know knows knows people in that that particular situation. Um, the reasons people do that are complex, and sometimes they involve politics. Sometimes they involve history and and sort of you know uh, family experiences with different political parties. Um, this is just the nature of, of the system we live in. Uh, and I think there are people who say, you know, I may not like him, but the fact is, I think if he's, and I think we saw this in 2016, I think if he's in power, I'm going to get things I want. And I can live with the, the problems he brings to office. I can live with um, the issues he brings in, because ultimately those policy changes he makes will be will will in the minds of these folks make a better America. Um, this is not in any way, shape, or form the exact same comparison. But again, I think if you look back at the 1990s, there were a lot of people who said, well, you know, Bill Clinton has a messed up uh, personal life, but the fact is he's okay in office. Now, again, impeachment uh, of the nature of Ukraine and January 6th is not impeachment over Monica Lewinsky. But, but that's uh, one example of how we saw that uh, you know, coming from the left at a, at a different time. That said, the thing that I keep looking at, look at 2020, look at 2022. Um, Georgia and Arizona going for a Democrat, that, I'm not going to say the DNC was shocked, but I don't necessarily think those were the states that they believed they were going to pick up. Georgia was probably, you know, a little, I won't say safer, but 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 a little more expected. Um, but But both of those, would have been a reach. And, and I'm still sort of shocked to look at the electoral map and see Arizona in blue for the first time since 1964. Um, I think the same thing could be said for 2022. One of the reasons why we did not have a red tide, a red wave, is because there are people who say, well, either I'm going to vote for a Democrat, maybe I'm going to split the ticket, I'm going to vote for, you know, do a write-in vote, or I'm just going to stay home. So yes, I think there are some some people who will vote for Trump no matter what. Some of them are are absolute true believers in in the sort of MAGA rhetoric. Some of them, like I said, are just I'm going to vote Republican no matter who's on the ticket. 
I do tend to think that we have evidence that 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 is um, not an insignificant block, but but that there are people who will uh, move on from that that voter block, depending on what happens. And this could be one of those moments. Um, I was talking to someone else about this, and I said, you know, what does it look like when you go into the the voting booth and you realize that the presidential candidate you might vote for as a mugshot, you know, that that is going to be a, a, a thing that people are going to have to wrestle with. And that might be a moment where we see um, folks break away from Trump uh, in, in ways they just haven't previously. What do you see uh, the media playing in this? And, and, and when I say media, I want to be specific that um, I'm, I'm not talking about anyone with a tape recorder. I'm, I'm specific certain media outlets um, the more traditional uh, outlets, what what role should they, or you think, will they be playing in this indictment? I think they're going to be, um, well, I think they're going to be two things that are going to be, they're going to be very aware of. I think for a lot of traditional media outlets, they are, they have a great sense of potentially, much like uh, Prosecutor Bragg's office, uh, just how much is on the line. Um, if they're their coverage is being seen as leaning in one way or another, they will lose more market share. Some of the the base they gained over the Trump years, something along those lines. So I think they're going to try to play this as close to the facts as possible, and and perhaps let their opinion arms kind of flourish to to fill in whatever gaps that they they don't feel comfortable having their reporters fill in. Um, but one of the tricky things with this is, uh, frankly, what kind of terminology do we need to invent to talk about someone who is under indictment, who is also running for president? Again, this is something that that hasn't been done on this this level. And so um, we're going to be seeing a whole new set of, of terms and, and ways of, of talking about this that have to get created by somebody um, to accurately express what the situation is. Um, yeah. And I specifically cited certain media outlets because I think it's fair to say going in, Fox News is going to cover the indictments one way and NBC will will cover it 180 degrees in, in the opposite direction. Uh, does that take us, uh, those two networks and, and, and their, um, and their like, does that take us down a rabbit hole that we've been discussing thus far, further down that rabbit hole? Probably does. This is where I um. This is where, in all fairness, my 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 study focus of study and and uh, sort of natural natural proclivities perhaps um, don't make me as as great a kind of observer of the media environment. Um, I think we are in a moment in which you know, unlike the political message I just gave you, this very hopeful political message where change can actually happen. Um, we are currently in a media environment where people, I think, are very fixed. Now, that said, we saw with the 2020 election, Fox News lost viewers, lost viewers, theoretically, probably to some more um, center channels like uh, NBC or CNN, um, you know, film blank, but also lost viewers to more right-leaning outlets, uh, OAN, um, Newsmax, things along those lines. So as much as I'm, I'm sort of saying this, we also know change can still happen. But I do think that um, this is a moment in which Americans, at least initially, and perhaps you could argue for understandable reasons, will gravitate towards these 
trusted news sources, wherever the trusted news sources is, to get that first draft of history. What we might see is, is over time, um, as a case like this evolves, once we get past the sort of blinding heat of, you know, recording this, what, the afternoon of the third, so, you know, the blinding heat of the next 24 hours-ish, once we get through that, maybe once we get through whatever these these early motions look like, pretrial looks like, that might be a moment where people begin to seek out um, those other voices. And again, those voices may lead them further down the rabbit hole. Those voices might lead them back into a kind of general, more general understanding of, of what is going on. But I think to start with, yeah, people are going to stay in their silos. Um, maybe that's not a shock, but but I think that's that's probably where things will will. Um, start from and we may get changed further down the line and, and, and my next question is, is, is i want you to think about just the impact on american democracy but how much will this case when will undoubtedly happen how much will this case be tried in the court of public opinion and how do you see that impacting american democracy it certainly will um, I have I have no doubt about that, and and look, I think that's that's unavoidable. Um, you know, one of the things. So so again, to to go back to history, and, and this is there's still some debate over this, but there's a lot of questions. Why does Gerald Ford pardon Richard Nixon? And you know, some of it is he wanted to help Nixon, you know, or, or he was not involved in Watergate, but said, okay, well, you know, we're just going to get rid of all these charges. Um, there's another sort of set of thoughts that, well, you know, he gets duped by Alexander Haig, among other people, and Nixon's sort of coterie of assistants who stay on for the Ford administration. One of the other um, explanations is there were rumors that Nixon was suicidal. And Ford basically says, you know, I may not like the guy, I may not like um, like sort of what's going to happen, but but I have to treat this this person as a human. I can't just completely look at this on the facts. And I think if if you know this is, I'm not saying the judge is going to look at Donald Trump and say, oh, I see this as a you know a sort of human being. But I think there are moments where this you know a different president in isolation may have looked at the Nixon situation and said, no question, we got to prosecute this. You know, hopefully we'll find him innocent, but we got to prosecute this. But that is not the world we live in. Um, the fact is Nixon knew this guy or Ford knew this guy, looked at the facts, believed that that Nixon might harm himself. And, and this apparently is one of the reasons he says, I got to give him a pardon. We live in a media age where um, it, I have no doubt that that uh, uh, public influence will play on this case in some respects. Say what you want about the judicial system, but the judicial system, at least in theory, and I think in many respects, um, uh, in in fact, although not all, has an ability to isolate itself from these influences. Um, that doesn't mean it's perfect. Doesn't mean that this is not going to be a trial, like you said, that is is tried in the court of public opinion to a greater or lesser degree. But I think this is something that the judicial system probably is is getting prepared, or, or whoever the, the judge who's been assigned this is is getting prepared to deal with. Um, I don't necessarily, you know, even under different circumstances, I think if you brought any president um, up again for these charges, you would you would see something similar happen. It, this is just a, an extreme case. You, you mentioned for the, the Gerald Ford partner, and I was thinking that, you know, one of these sort of unanswered questions about the Ford partner, and, and it's a certain different media public uh, discourse environment that we have now, but 
Ford, Ford actually uh, issued a preemptive pardon because Nixon had never been indicted for anything. So, I, I, you know, so and no one ever, I guess everyone just sort of hit the brakes and said, okay, pardon him, we're going to stop. Um, if, I mean, I couldn't see this, but if, if President Biden did a preemptive pardon, I don't see that, I don't see people hitting the brakes on a preemptive pardon today. I would agree. Yes. No, I, I think, well, and, uh, this is, this is the situation where, um, you know, the, the Nixon pardon covered <laughs> one of the, the tricky things about Nixon is of course, you know, how many crimes did he commit in an office? Well, you know, in some respects it doesn't matter because we're just dealing with Watergate. So let's give him a pardon and we'll, we'll kind of call it a day with that. With Trump, it, it seems to me, and I think we're seeing this with, with a, the variety of investigations that are going forward, there are a number of different potential prosecutions that are are coming to the the fore. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, much like my my Johnson Nixon sort of anecdote from from a little while ago, you could see a situation. I, again, I, I agree with you. I'm not. Sure, I don't see this happening. But you can envision a situation in which Biden says, "Gosh, you know, for the for the good of the nation, we have to stop this." This is actually similar, frankly, to what Obama did with um, the Bush administration. There were all con- all kinds of ideas about. We're going to bring Dick Cheney before Congress, and we're going to, you know, put throw all kinds of charges against him for authorizing torture. And Obama makes it very clear it's not in the best interest of the nation. Um, that is, you know, I, again, I think we sort of forgot about that as a nation because we were kind of able to to pigeonhole it. But um, I agree that that if this, with the the intensity surrounding this particular case. Even if Biden said, you know, pardon for this, um, you know, we're not gonna we're not gonna risk the nation on this, there probably would still be other charges that that might go forward against him. And I think, in case Biden had any of these ideas in mind, um, the public outcry, especially from his voter base, would be such that 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 would be politically um, very damaging. Potentially, you could say in the exact same way it dam- damaged Gerald Ford back in the 1970s. Um, but yeah, no, I I agree with your point. This, to to put it bluntly, people would not let sleeping dogs lie if if that kind of pardon came down uh, today. You know, you know, the other piece we start talking about is the impact on democracy, and it seems to me one of the aspects about the Trump presidency that I still think is is in my view has been overlooked is not the things he did illegally, and those are, those are very good things, it's the things he did legally. For example, one of the most, I'll give two, and I'll have you comment, that these are actions that could be taken right now. Number one, if you look at the money he raised for the inauguration, and if you look at what was actually spent on the inauguration and what's left, that's a tremendous amount of money. Where did that money go? Um, it wasn't against the law. Um, it's been implied, assumed post Watergate, that any presidential nominee would um, give over their tax returns. That's not law. So there are things that can be done to shore up democracy that have not been touched. And I want to. Have, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? Absolutely, yes. Well, and this is you know in the in the field of um, in the field of presidential studies of which you know, I'm a very very junior junior person, so I'm not trying to comment for for many, many esteemed colleagues who are, are far more uh, advanced than I am. But um, 
you know, both political scientists, historians have been spending the last four, I guess, six years at this point discussing just what you pointed out, which are these gaps, these um, accepted norms that for a long time, because they were so accepted, you didn't have to make them law. Good news. Well, gosh, now actually we should sort of firm these things up. There are a number of good governance groups that are um, trying to push forward various resolutions that would firm up election law, firm up, um, Congress is, you know, trying to do this to a certain extent, firm up, uh, actually, the, the tax return, you know, make that um, a, a, a now a, a law that presidential candidates would have to turn over those tax returns. Um, you know, I'm sure there are examples of, of what had been a norm that we may look at and say, well, you know, that should stay a norm. It shouldn't be made a law for, for maybe these reasons. However, um, there's nothing bad with fortifying democracy. <laughs> I think that that's ultimately a a good um, a good sort of a good thing to do. This is a, a saying I feel like a lot of people heard during the Trump years, but there was this kind of moment where people would sort of pat themselves on the back and say, "Well, congratulations! Um, you know, the guardrails of democracy held. The car maybe veered towards the edge of the highway, but the guardrails of democracy kept us on the straight and narrow." I think we overestimate whether those guardrails were actually doing the job or whether the car simply didn't just fall off a cliff and, and managed to stay on the stay on the grass or something along those lines. That's a little bit of a tortured metaphor, um, but it also means, and, and I think people are aware of this, we can't necessarily trust institutions in the way we like to think we, they, we could. Um, there is a, a moment where they can defend things, but, but putting this stuff into law, making sure there is not only an accepted norm, but a legal... Um, backing of those norms that that makes that that is makes complete sense to me and feels very common sense. Well, with respect to your tor tortured uh, uh, <laughs> metaphor, I would say I had this vision of the car sort of careening, and I saw sparks flying <laughs> as this rubbing up against the guardrail. So, it, so on slick tires in the snow. So <laughs> <laughs> that is that is exactly. I think you are. Yeah, I think we're in, in similar <laughs> similar thoughts there in terms of, of yeah. Um, it is. I'm not sure what state the car and car was in when all was said and done, but um, but yeah, I think guardrails probably played a role in that. Maybe not the role we like to think. Maybe, unfortunately, maybe fundamental damage to the car was uh, was the reason why things weren't worse. Um, but and hey, the torch of the metaphor a little bit more. The car, car can be repaired, you know. This is and the car happened to be a 1970 Ford Country Squire, so <laughs> <laughs> all all steel bodies. So uh, yeah, I yeah. Say. Right. Um, finally, yeah. Um, is this an opportunity for Russian interference? Um, potentially, yes. Although, uh, this is a very good question, and I think a little tricky for two reasons. The first is, I assume many of the uh, organizations that Russia used to um, interfere in the 2016 election or, or involve itself in American politics more generally, I assume many of those institutions are um, very busy uh, relating to the Ukraine. So there may not be, I don't mean to make a joke about that, obviously very, very serious and, and um, tragic subject, but there may be, uh, Russian intelligence may not have the bandwidth, how shall we say, to, uh, to implement such an operation in the way that they might have previously. I think it's also unquestionably true that um, there is a, 
how to put this, there's an awareness in certainly the American government and the American public more generally about what some of these um, some of these operations look like, which is not to say we could identify them. That was one of the, the, the sort of reasons they worked is because they seemed so natural. Um, but there's there's an awareness, there's a moment of looking out for that that we, we just didn't have back in 2016. Um, and probably last but not least, I, I like to think, like I said, that that there are just elements of the American public that that are perhaps a touch more skeptical of, of some of the ways in which um, you saw that Russian intervention. Again, I may be, maybe, uh, I won't say too Pollyanna-ish here, but I may be too optimistic in terms of, of um, that resiliency. But for those reasons, um, that level of interference, um, perhaps famous last words, but feels unlikely in the current situation. Well, I, I see you frolicking down the road in your Ford Country <laughs> Squire, just, just having a great, great time of it. Professor Andrew David, I can't thank you enough for sharing your expertise and your thoughts here on the Public Morale Day. Much appreciated, sir. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. Appreciate it. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Paul McRally on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Paul McRally at their studios. The Paul McRally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.